Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, and City Limits is on air. We better, I'll just push over and close this door. Good morning. Kevin is here right on the nick of time, just <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Mark, how are you? It's Mark. I'm, I'm all right. Andy, Andy I'm, I'm pressing good. The buttons good morning. And, uh, I'm Kevin Healy. It is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month. We're going to have John Passon on today. This is good news. Uh, who's um, a regular or irregular, regular, one of our irregular, regulars, regular, irregulars or whatever, um, who, of course, is the ex-assistant commissioner for taxation, who's going to talk to us about a lot of economic issues again. We get he, He's a popular request man because often when we're discussing issues, we get notes from people saying, what would John Passant say about mm. that? Or could you ask John Passant this? Uh, yeah, he's, he's one of our more in-demand guests. He is, and uh, he is, says he, moving away from the mic. I'm just going to get my stuff out of the bag, actually, because uh, I did just make it into the, <laughs> into the uh, in front of the mic as, well, that's uh, all right. as it went on. Have you got but, a collection of clippings for us today? Oh, I do, I Excellent. do, of course I do, yes. Excellent. And uh, one of them is a bit of a classic, actually. Uh, it's one you might be able to explain to me. Um, if I can, uh, hang on, I'm, I'm going to annoy people like mad by just reaching into this bag. Mm. So what's the basic theme of the one of this one that you're it's referring to? It's about the American pharmaceutical industry. Ah, okay. Which, um, as part of the uh, free trade agreements, of course, so we know they they want to uh, they want to virtually demolish our system and, yes. and make it so that they can make lots of money. Yes. Well, this one uh, says he. Now I'm getting somewhere. Um, this is great. For listeners, of course, it's just the most, the most riveting radio. Here we are now. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, we. Uh, I'm going to pour myself a cup of tea. Up right you pour yourself to. a cup of tea. <laughs> but like, can I mention it was a beautiful morning for riding a bike across country this morning. It was just one of those lovely spring mornings, and at last, you know, so, it wasn't too cold. It didn't is. Need a it jacket. is a really beautiful morning. Yeah. Riding across Edinburgh Gardens, which is part of my route, it was just quite delightful. I took so, a risk and hung my washing out outside this morning. Oh, so when I get back, we'll see if it's drenched. Yeah, predicting yeah, right. heavy rain this afternoon so yeah. you get home and take it off the line you'll be um, okay uh, I might have yeah. to send a text to my flatmate ah right yes because uh, but it mightn't come I mean that the prediction is sometime no tonight I think hitting Melbourne tonight actually so yeah you might be okay and Adelaide's okay. in for a very big storm as well yeah mm. yes yeah, uh, but thank god there's no such thing as, as climate change thank god for that yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the good things about things exactly um now this one <laughs> this is one of the great stories um the the drug company Novum Pharma, um, they knocked up a, a sixty gram tube of Aliquin, which is used for eczema and skin stuff, acne, etc. They raised the price to a casual nine and a half thousand dollars a tube. Jeez, a tube, yeah, okay. Now it also points out that the under the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, they're, they're labelling it is it's labelled as possibly effective, <laughs> <laughs> meaning there is only limited clinical evidence suggesting it's safe and works as intended. From a clinical standpoint, a drug listed as possibly affected by the FDA shouldn't be a likely treatment choice by doctors, especially not with a 10 grand price tag, <laughs> said Michael Ray, Chief Executive of RX Saving Solutions. But, and, of course, we had that case last year of Blood Court Martin Shrecky, um, or Shrecky, bought a, a drug company and put up the price of an AIDS um, uh, yes. We all know that one, from yes. thirteen fifty to seven seven hundred and fifty a pill. Yeah. Uh, but this is the bit I want you to um, to explain to me, okay? Okay. Well, either of you, I mean, you both got a chance to, right, here to we prove, go. prove here yourself. We go. 
The pressure's on. Okay. Uh, a story says in May 2015, a tube of aliquin cost 241.50, which I think is still exorbitant. Mm, Thank God. We, this is what they want to bring to us, this sort of medicine. Yes. But after acquiring the drug from Primus Pharmaceuticals, Novum raised its price overnight by 1,100% up to the casual 10 grand or 9.5 grand. Now, this is the bit... Can you explain what this means to me? Okay, here we go. How, they go. To, how, how raising it to 10 grand does this, okay? Mm. The company said it would invest revenues generated by the higher prices in schemes that ensured more patients could access the medicine. Ah, genius. Mm. Yes. Genius. Now, explanation here, I, I do need one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm afraid, Kevin, there is just no explanation. <laughs> right. So you raise the price to 10 grand so everyone can have more access to it. It's bizarre, isn't it? It makes you think that people are just taking this as a big joke. It makes, it's just, um, it's hard to take this seriously. I mean... Seriously, do they really think that raising the price to that exorbitant level is... Uh, anyway, mind boggles. Well, who's going to buy it, for God's sake? Uh, Max, who, who yeah. is going to buy it? Yeah. Who is going to buy it? I, I mean, it's not even guaranteed that it's going to work. You want to have an acute case of acne to buy it. You would have to have an acute yeah. case of acne yeah, to buy it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, speaking of acute, our, um, our wonderful Prime Minister in London, in um, New York last week at the UN... Mm. Uh, the word humanity you might have heard kept coming from his lips. Every time you heard him open his mouth, humanity came mm. out, particularly in relation to refugees. And Peter Duff, Peter Duff I keep wanting to call him Duff, anyway, the immigration minister mm. was there. And yet, you know, I mean, isn't that embarrassing when you look at his head up there at the UN and think he's lecturing people? And they must, what do they think of Australians when they see that deal? It anyway, is embarrassing. Oh, isn't it? Anyway, um, the bit I enjoyed, though, was apart from the fact that. Um, that Malcolm said we're all humane, but we can't do anything about Nauru or Manus Island, etc. He he also lectured Iran about refugee policy, and did you notice that? And he said that Iran should be forced to take people back, so Iranians in Australia should be sent back. And he said, either voluntarily or involuntarily, they should accept people coming to go back to Iran. So this is a wonderful policy, isn't it? When people flee a country. Uh, a country where if they return, there's every chance they won't mm. be treated all that well. Yeah, uh, it's an understatement. And you demand that the country take them back voluntarily or involuntarily. So you drag them down to Darwin Airport or something, throw them on a plane and pack them off. It's ironic that Turnbull uses the term humanity because he, 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 he treats humans like units, units that can be just shifted around like, you know, chess pieces on a chessboard. And that was apparent in, in again, what he said, because while he said we have to have secure borders and, you know, that usual line emanating from when Howard and everyone else said it, and I'll bet the blacks in 1788 wish they'd talked about secure borders at that time. Exactly. When the first boat people hit the place. Exactly. Um, He talked about secure borders on the one hand, and then he also lectured them on trade, free trade agreements, and said we must we must fight against protectionism. Mm. So he wants protectionism, no protectionism for money. Capital must have free flow mm. around the world, but people must be stopped from free flowing around the world, particularly refugees and those fleeing our invasion. So, in the one sentence, virtually he said. Let's restrict people's movements. You see, the problem is, Kevin, is refu- not restrict capital. refugees don't invest in real estate in Australia. That's, that's the issue. They're not, they're not wealthy, rich people that the Australian housing Ponzi scheme needs in the country. So uh, that's, the, that's the downside of it all, you right. see. Yeah. If, they, if they're here long enough, they probably would be into buying a house. Well, they would. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. yeah in yeah. theory. But if anyone can afford to buy a house... Well, that so. would be money from the jobs they've taken off Australians, of course. Of course, yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. all those... Yeah. Yeah. All those jobs. In fact, they get a bit complicated, don't they? They often say they're doll bludging job stealers, and you think, well, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So apparently, some of them are doll bludgers and some of them are job stealers. Those that were doll bludgers need to get a job, but if they do, they're stealing it. Yeah. And those that were stealing it should go back on the doll because right. they're stealing a job. Yeah, yeah they call it Schrodinger's <laughs> immigrant. That's right. Yes. No, it's all under control. Now I'm in this. You're helping me out here today to sort some of these things out. I'm here to uh, solve the world's problems. Problems. Yes, that's good. <laughs> uh, even even without caffeine, we probably can if they let us do it. <laughs> but the trouble is, they do get in the way. Um, 
guns, which are not the ones, not the ones people fire at people in America all over the place, which police kill blacks with, but the company in Tasmania. Which is almost as bad. Which, well, yeah. <laughs> it, um, it, of course, ran the state for a long, long time, and there was, of course, the big thing about the, um, the plant, the whatever it was called. What was the plant called again? The, oh, the pulp the, mill. Pot, yeah, pulp mill, yeah. Mm. Um, and that big issue. Well, since then, guns has gone into liquidation, and they, they're not travelling all that well. They've been pulped. But they lost another case this week, plus costs, because they, they, they went to bill in 20... Um, before, in 2011 or so, they decided to build a dam um, that um, to go with some of their work. But they built the dam but didn't actually have a permit for it off the government. They were waiting for a permit and they built the dam. And when they, um, later on, they didn't get the uh, permit anyway. It was to service a vineyard they were doing. It was, they were you know, getting out and do all sorts of things. I'm moving into viticulture at this stage because I, I think with climate change, Tasmania is becoming more of a wine place anyway, mm, etc. Because uh, uh, all that's happening, the fish are going down there as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, they didn't get it, so they've sued the government because the government didn't get it. They didn't get the water, so the dam just sat there. And there's this nine two ninety five megalitre dam completed in 2010, never filled because of all this. So they sued for damages, but were unsuccessful. And not unreasonably, and they actually they, they, they lost that case, went to the full court, and this week the full court again found against them. But the, I thought the Supreme Court judge probably was, was not unreasonable saying that guns knew it did not have a licence when it commenced construction of the dam, mm. um, but it's still suing the government mm. for damages for not giving them the licence they didn't have when they built it. Yeah, um, so it's the height of arrogance, if you ask yes, me. Yes, but of course, I suppose there was a time when that would have they would have thought we don't need a license. Well, that's we run right, the because state. they ran the run state, the state and, exactly. And bloody hell, they've elected another government and they won't let them do it. They're still coming to terms with the fact that they're not running the state. A bit like Tony Abbott, really. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but he never really ran it. No, he? well, that's true. No, <laughs> no, no I mean, that's true. He never really did. Poli- I keep forgetting that. <laughs> Politicians uh, never run the state. They just no. think they do. Yes. And it's people like Guns in Tasmania yes, and uh, exactly. all the other big companies that actually run it and they just do their bidding for them. That's just probably uh, the public that think the politicians run Speaking the of those who do run the state... Um, a new book's come out, um, or Reflections, by Chris Mitchell, who was the former editor-in-chief of The Australian, which we all know is one of the great, great radical newspapers and progressive newspapers of this country. Ruben it's cutting-edge. Yes. Well, Lachlan Murdoch, um, the son of, of course, um, Lockie, young Lockie, which mm. not so young anymore, Lockie. Lock, Lock, I, I think it's worth... I've mentioned on the program before, but I think it's worth mentioning about Lachlan, because he... Uh, He's now he's now one of the big heads here running it in Australia. Um, when in America before the Gulf War, before the 03, when they invaded um, Afghanistan or invaded Iraq, uh, the the Murdoch radio stations across America, the talkback people who made our our worst talkback people look benign, mm. screaming and yelling across Middle That's America. Something. Yeah. Um, of course, they were screaming and yelling that that the US must, must invade, must bomb the hell out of, must kill all these Iraqis, go mm. get them, go get them, go war, wow, wow, wow. Now, at that stage, Lachlan was in charge of um, of the Sky Fox um, radio network, or that network in America. So here's this, so he, his politics are extreme right wing. But in this book, which is a bit unfair to poor Lockie, uh, the bloke points out that Lockie believed that the two Australians executed in um, Indonesia deserved to be executed. So isn't that wonderful? Um, Crikey. Yeah. 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 I mean, it doesn't surprise me, though. I mean, mean, yeah. Oh, he's a fine young man. Yes. Uh, Yes, yes. Now, the other one that's come up this week, and we might even mention it in passing with John, is, of course, the proposal that they, or the, it's been mooted that they will probably close the Hazelwood Power Plant oh, yes. next year yes. sometime, which is which is a bloody good decision. Yeah. And there's been some screaming from the valley about the impact, etc. I think that's fair enough. I mean, you've really got to allow for how you um, how you handle the situation. Oh, you really with, do. With jobs, yeah, you absolutely have to. Um, yeah. A couple of things that I find very worrying, though, are that they they expect the state government to foot the bill uh, for all that. 
uh, when I think after making trillions over a long, long time, the company has some responsibility, Absolutely. I would have thought, to Absolutely. handling it and uh, and handling the what will replace it in the valley. Now, all those things have to happen. But, of course, we've now also got the usual suspects, including the energy minister, called energy minister here, when he's actually the minister for environment and energy. We've made that comment, of course, that putting them together is sinister, I think. But um, Josh Frydenberg, or Friedem Icebergs, as we call him, um, Josh, um, Josh and the usual suspects in industry are saying this is going to cause at least a 25% increase in energy energy prices by closing Hazelwood. So maybe we should keep all these places. Maybe make it bigger. Make it bigger, if you yeah. Make it, if you make it bigger, maybe the prices will go down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the problem, you see. You've got people like Josh Frydenberg who just have an oversimplistic view of the world and it's it's dangerous, you know. He would it's, say it's... we do. <laughs> yeah, he would, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> is it not radical to think that we can actually reduce climate emissions and create an affordable energy sector? Is it is it really that difficult? Aren't there enough intelligent people in the world to make that happen? I'd need to think about that for a while. <laughs> but <laughs> whatever you just said. Is, yeah. but, I mean, we need we need we need we need our leaders to actually rise up to the challenges that we have here, and they are complex, and there are lots of paradoxes, and we have to deal with them, and we have to deal with the seriousness of the situation. Yeah. And it just, I didn't ask, but you didn't want a cup of tea, did you, Andy? Uh, that was my yeah, little right, rant, that's folks, right, yeah, there. That, yeah, right, okay, yeah. Um, I'll just topping up again. Yes. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Yeah, but on that one, this morning on Radio National, Frydenberg was interviewed. Uh, did anyone hear it at all? And, um, I didn't, he, Once no. again, he, he extolled the great values of coal in, in getting the world's poor out of poverty. He was talking about this report coming out on the Barrier Reef. And uh, even Fran Kelly, because they often don't ask, you know, particularly probing questions on those programs. Like the other couple of days ago, she interviewed Julie Bishop about the problem in Syria and asked her, um, you know, should Russia be uh, charged with with war crimes uh, to Julie Bishop? You know, that's a pretty probing question, I would have thought, and didn't mention them about John Howard or anyone else being charged. Well, uh, quite. No, no, no. But anyway... Um, this morning she did say to him, look, there's this big report you're putting out on the Great Barrier Reef and trying to save it, etc., but there's not one mention of climate change in the whole report. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and even she thought that may have been a bit of an oversight. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, Josh, and then she did ask him about why, how the Adani mine could operate there without causing mm. damage. And he pointed out that, one, we're not going to close coal mines around Australia because they're, um, they, 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 they're invaluable. They do wonderful work. And that Adani has passed the most rigid environmental tests. So there you are. So it's all OK. All OK. Nothing to worry about And here, then he went no. into his spiel about India and around the world where people are saved by coal, etc. Ah, so he's in his own little fantasy right. bubble. He's, he's mean, the Minister for the Environment. If we want any chance whatsoever of saving the reef... and. The the option, you know, the the outlook is very bleak. But if we if we do, I mean, we have to close. We have to be closing coal mines, not not opening new ones. But everyone knows that. <sighs> yes, except uh, well, I think, I'm sure he does as well. I'm sure he does I'm as sure well. He does. Yeah. Uh, there's one that's going to blow up. I mentioned it a few months ago, and I think it's worth mentioning again. During the election campaign, it, it started to flow out that George Brandis, the Attorney General, had brought, out, brought down this dictum that, um, that anyone approaching the Solicitor General, who's also a silk, uh, had to go through him because department, you know, he advises all sorts of things for government and government departments just go to him and ask for advice. But now George has ruled that every, every, everyone approaching the Solicitor General has to go through him. Right. Now, at the time, he said he had consulted the Solicitor General who denied that, and it's one of those plays on words things where consulting mm. to him meant he took a phone call or returned one or something, but they never actually discussed it. Mm. But now the Solicitor General, under um, Freedom of Information, has put out a report on it in which he, he says he was certainly was not consulted, and we pointed out at the time that once Parliament really gets going... I think there'll be all sorts of allegations about George Brandis uh, misleading Parliament because he told mm. Parliament and then subsequently in outside Parliament also said it. Uh, and indeed, going the Financial Review this week has a story that Leeds 
with documents released under Freedom of Information laws suggest Attorney General George Brannis has misled Parliament in claiming its culture. So uh, I think that's one we can watch this space on. And, uh, I'll get the popcorn. Poor old, yeah, poor old George could yeah. be in a little bit old, but let's hope not because he's a, you know, oh, he's a lovely, he's man. a wonderful. Well, I, I read actually there was a there was a piece some time ago about the right and left wing of the Liberal Party, and he was put down as one of the left wing. I thought, well, my God, <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show how far to the right they've moved. <laughs> what to say about the others? <laughs> That's that's quite disturbing, actually. Oh, isn't it? Well, anyway, he's, he's one of the progressives. Apparently. Yeah, he's one of the progressives. Speaking is... of progressive silks, Alan Myers QC, who's reputed, you know, I think arguably the, the richest QC in the country, but he's just sold a half share in a cattle station in, in Northern Territory for $49 million, um, to a group of investors, the Tipperary Empire, um, Anyway, and it, it lists a number of ones. In 2009, the Australian Agricultural Company spent more than a million in due diligence, including as But he, he sold the Fish River property out of the Tipperary Holdings in 2011, then sold Elizabeth Downs in 2014, etc. And all this money, million, $49 million there. He sold more than half his cattle herd to the Australian Agricultural Company for $26 million in 2011. And you think all this money he's getting and all this land, I know every bit of land in the country was originally, and it still is in many ways, still is Aboriginal land. Mm. But the Aboriginal people, these people, millions, 49 million for just a bit of it here, etc., half it, um, all this money they're making... And the Aboriginal people got not one cent for any of this land. Right, doesn't but, surprise me. But in this case, it's worse, I think, because they were, not only did they take it off them, but then they employed them. Yes. But not only did they not pay them for the land, they didn't even pay them for their work. Mm, that's um, shocking. Horrendous. And, you know, no. and yet you've got you know senior one of the Australia's biggest senior silks selling a you know just a bit of one for fifty mil effectively, and all the other mills. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a sad reflection of the way things are, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So just that just that thought struck me when I saw that piece. That yeah. With, um, those people. Okay, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll have a yarn to uh, John Passett and get some sense into this program. Look forward to it. Mm. Love to sleep at night 
That was Shock Octopus and Siren, and they are regulars on uh, 3CR, so there we go. Yes, and John Passant will, will be uh, Mark dancing around his room at the moment. I hope he's back at the phone um, at that. But um, John Passant's on the line. He, of course, is, as we keep saying every time he comes on the show, he's a former Assistant Commissioner for Taxation who comments on this program on economic issues. And, um, John, just to open up, I, I, one of the cuttings I've got here is um, David Murray, the former head of the Commonwealth Bank, whom the government gets to do reports for it. He did the recent financial system inquiry who says we ought to get off the backs of the banks and not not you know not get stuck into them but i thought as an as a former person yourself a former assistant commissioner does the government ever approach you to do these sort of inquiries for it <laughs> no they haven't that's a good question i wonder why <laughs> perhaps they only appoint people to do inquiries because they want the results or they know they're going to give them the results they want. Yeah, you might come <laughs> up with a, 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 a report that would be a tad different to his, I would have thought. Uh, yes, I'd possibly suggest maybe nationalising the banks under workers' control, which probably wouldn't fit well for the <laughs> Labour or Liberal government. <laughs> no, it certainly wouldn't. But, um, no. John... Um, well, we always start off by asking you questions about tax or something else, but is there anything on your mind recently about the, in all these issues that you want to talk to us about at all that, without asking uh, you a specific question? Uh, yes, I, I, I think uh, there are a couple of different issues that are cro- cropping up, which I think will come up in the discussion anyway, but obviously the same-sex marriage plebiscite, the recent essential polling on Muslims, uh, the on bans on Muslims, the... Um, the dispute at uh, Carlton United Breweries, all those sorts of things mm. are in my mind, as well as the backpack attacks. But uh, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to those. Let, well, okay. Your thoughts on the the same stick? I mean, the, clearly the plebiscite. Um, one, well, can I just make a comment here? I find it interesting. They keep saying we've got a we've got a mandate, and therefore you've got to um, you've got to follow our mandate. But, of course, the other parties have a mandate not to go to the plebiscite, don't they? Yes, exactly. And who controls the Senate, presumably? It looks like the people who were arguing they, that, that they were opposed to a plebiscite have the control of the Senate. So I think this mandate issue is a, a, a furphy, along with all of the stuff about democracy that we're now hearing. Suddenly the people who changed the Marriage Act in 2004 without a plebiscite through the Parliament are all in favour of having a plebiscite to, to change it again. Or the people who went to war in Iraq, the same sort of people are now not in favour, continues to not be in favour of having a plebiscite on Iraq. So I think most of the stuff they're talking about is a furphy to hide the reality of the politics within the Liberal Party and the sway that the extreme right and the homophobic right have Definitely. over the Prime Minister. Definitely. It's a pity that we don't have any mainstream media that's willing to highlight these furfers so that the general public can, can see through this. And this is the big problem, isn't it? Uh, yes. I think if you look at uh, most of the mainstream media, they're reporting on issues like the plebiscite or even the banks, <laughs> which we'll get on to in a minute, or um, the the breweries disputed, Carlton United Breweries, and, and the, the question of um, the rise of Pauline Hanson their analysis is fairly superficial. And indeed, speaking of superficiality, uh, the debate yesterday between Trump and Clinton was was itself superficial, but the analysis of that debate is it has highlighted the superficiality of the mainstream media. Mm. I guess the one thing in all of this is that there are alternative media that have grown up, so, such as yourself, um, but also in the uh, electronic field, in, in uh, um, social media and so forth, where alternative voices can be heard. And it's no wonder that the mainstream media's 
the, the newspaper um, coverage, the newspaper readership is dropping remarkably across uh, across the Western world because people aren't satisfied with, with what uh, these uh, mainstream media are offering. Mm. Mm. And indeed, the last state election here in Victoria and the last federal election, the Murdoch media... Uh, has come out and even since the last state election, day, day after day down here in Victoria, it attacks the Premier. Dan is a pejorative on the front page of the Herald Sun day after day. Uh, and yet it didn't swing the election last time. The Labor still won it despite, and of course Murdoch can't forgive that, but people got it wrong. But it does show that his power is weakening, I think, yeah. It does. Oh, no, I think as well on top of that, I think there's an overemphasis on... <laughs> the media leading um, people into thinking in certain ways. In fact, I think uh, very often we see that the media uh, are irrelevant to the things that people and the way that people think about things. And you can see that more clearly in terms of the left wing in, in the UK where the rise of Jeremy Corbyn has caught all of the establishment, including the media, off guard and, of course, including sections of the, the establishment in the Labor Party off mm. guard. And... Um, the lies they tell about him aren't having any impact. He still continues to win massive support from ordinary Labor members and wider members of the society. So it goes to I show that there is a paradigm shift happening, doesn't it, in terms of uh, well, people's least, perceptions and approaches to the media? Yes, I think it's not just that people are dismissive of the media. I think it's also that um, they are looking for alternative views and because the mainstream media aren't giving people... Um, ideas on which they can reflect and debate and think about that are reflective of what they, mm. they themselves uh, are thinking, and people are looking for alternative outlooks like uh, 3CR, for example. Yeah. And I think that's a great thing. Um, but, of course, then the question of funding comes into account um, and survivability, but 3CR's been going for a while now, but keep up the good work. 40th birthday this year. Uh, yeah, John. well yeah. done. Yes. The, well, you also mentioned Islamophobia, um, and uh, we, we were commenting, in fact, on air earlier in the show that... Uh, there's a bit of a contradiction because they call people, you know, dole bludging job stealers, and you can't be both. Um, but we, and it, you know, if you steal a job, you should be back on the dole because you stole the job. But if you're on the dole, you should get a job, but then you're stealing it. Um, but this seems to be the sort of mad contradictions going on, doesn't it? Oh yes, I think uh, I wrote something just recently for um, um, an independent outlet called Independent Australia about this, where there's a whole process of othering going on at the moment. Well, in fact, it's not just at the moment, there's been a process of othering, that is, creating an enemy, whether it's external, like the Russians are coming, or the Germans are coming, or the Japanese are coming, or internal, you know, that, that uh, Aboriginal people are a threat to our livelihood, or that Muslims are swamping us, or whatever the other idiotic lies are. And the domino, but, the domino theory, of course, led to the Vietnam War. Yes, well, in fact, <laughs> the, the, the domino theory was an excuse for the Vietnam War, of course, and that the yellow peril became a red peril, now, now appears to be a Muslim peril. So if you look back at Australian history, the whole history of Australia has been this process of demonising a section of society or a section outside society from external forces. But of course, um, that doesn't just apply to other races. It can apply to, as you say, to the dole bludgers who are somehow stealing jobs. I mean, the classic one was the Daily Telegraph report of, I think they called them NEETS, which from memory was new... Oh, anyway, I think basically yeah. the dole bludger job stealers. The Herald Sun did it here last week as well, whatever it's called. But, yeah, but the whole yeah. story was made up. I mean, the person who they were interviewing about how she had a wonderful uh, wonderful life on the dole was actually uh, in employment. And I think the point there is that the media were very keen to play up this idea of dole bludgers, but there aren't dole bludgers. There are 800,000 people looking for work and there are about 100 120,000 jobs. So you've got a seven-to-one ratio. You're unemployed because the system cannot provide enough jobs for for people to get. And I think that's one of the issues. I mean, look, do we need action to address climate change? Do we need better public transport? Do we need better public housing? Do we need better public trans uh, better public education and public health? Of course we do. We need more people to provide those sorts of things. But this is the government which, listening to Scott Morrison this morning, was saying, well, we need to cut the, the taxes on the big companies because 
um, that'll free up investment and wages will go up and there'll be more employment. I mean, this is classic trickle-down nonsense. They're still and trying the, to push that despite everything that's happened. It's quite amusing. Yeah, I don't know that it's amusing. I think it's very frightening. Well, but yeah. It's, part of the it's one of those cases thing. where if you, you, you kind of um, laugh because you, otherwise you cry, you know. Yes, that's right. I, I, and you just listen to this and you think, some people might believe this, but of course, I think that the idea that we give a $50 billion tax cut to big business and medium business and that this will somehow produce a nirvana of capitalism in Australia doesn't gel with many people because the whole of the last 30 years has had the same rhetoric and the same process in place of reducing taxes on big business. And it hasn't produced this nirvana. We're still with 800,000 people looking for jobs and there's only 100,000 or 120,000 available. So, um, yeah, I, the, the question of gold bludgers, of course, is just another part of the other end. That we're identifying it, and it's a, it's a, a distraction, isn't it? It's, it's to distract us from the, you know, from the facts. What is, I think it's $452 billion from big corporations and millionaires in Australia that is not being taxed. You yeah, know, not so, taxed. Not taxed. Four hundred and fifty-four billion is not taxed from yeah. the top one hundred um, public companies and the top two hundred public companies. And as I've argued before, um, that revenue—if you just imposed a flat three percent uh, uh, fee on that amount—you'd have thirteen or fourteen billion dollars, uh, mm. which would go a long way to being helping people. And I think the other thing about all of this dull budget nonsense is, what are they using this rhetoric for? Um, not only to blame people who uh, are unemployed because the system can't, but also to attack the level of of the dole itself or the new start and so forth. I mean, $264 a week to live on is about $140 below the poverty line, mm. and this government aims to make that worse. And I think there's a whole range of reasons for that. One is that they think that it bolsters their, um, their own particular political advantage by attacking a group of... Um, unemployed people who are defenceless against their attacks. But also I think it's part of driving down the dole, which is a longer-term pro- program to um, undermine wages in Australia or the level of wages in Australia. So uh, the That's lower the dole is, more, the more people... And, and the fact that you're living in greater, um, greater and greater poverty, the more likely you are to accept a very low-paying job and, in fact, one that might be under minimum wage. And so it puts pressure downwards pressure on all mm. wages as a mm. consequence. And of course at the same time as they take all unemployed as dole bludgers, they're doing everything they can to cut out jobs as much as possible. Uh, robots are now coming in, but the, also, the technology generally is being used to get rid of workers. Uh, the same, and, and the end result of that is, of course, if it wasn't the capitalism, you'd probably have a lovely life because you could, most people could do very little work for what they produce, or or else, um, you know, you could do other things with your life. We could have a three-day working week. Oh, yes, we could, or we could have uh, four hours a week or something like that. Yeah. Uh, four hours a day, I mean. Um, if you remove the profit motive and utilise the machines that are being used at the moment for the benefit of humanity rather than for just making a profit. Mm. But, of course... The, the question of automation is also linked into something that Marx talked about many years ago, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And I won't go into all the details, but in, in cost savings by employing, by using robots, for example, at the expense of humans, you're using less humans and investing less in those humans, but it's only humans who produce the unpaid labour that provides the basis for profit and rent and interest mm. and dividends. So you're actually undermining your own system by over-automating. Who, um, buy, who buy the goods. Mm, yeah, exactly. and, and that as well is, flows on to, well, if there are more and more people who don't have a job, then we don't have enough money to spend to buy the goods that are being produced by the robot. Mm. So it's a, a, it's a, a, a dangerous development in, in the sense of it undermines the whole basis of capitalism, which is high profit rates. Uh, um, And speaking of high profit rates, if I could just mention banks here, (laughs) if that's okay. Yes, I've got a holding on banks here we're going to move on to, but yes, go on, move on. (laughs) Um, The the banks are saying, oh, look, we're vital to the Australian economy. You can't do anything to undermine us. Imagine if you had a royal commission into banks. That would be dreadful because it would make all these furious allegations about us and it would undermine confidence in us. We might have to pay 
um, borrow at higher rates from international banks, uh, other other banks internationally, and that would mean that you, the ordinary consumer, would have to pay more. Now, the problem is that we're already paying through the nose for our current banks, who are the most profitable in the world. They have been, for the last decade, every year, almost every year, or for the last five years anyway, they've been the most profitable banks in the world, the big four Australian banks. Mm. Why are they most profitable? Because their margins on on loans and so forth are, are extra high. And how, how can they justify that? Well, because they are making super profits at the expense of of their ordinary customers. So I think when the banks talk about, oh, look, we don't want to be... We are the foundation of the economy. We have to understand that, firstly, they're making massive super profits, and secondly, they're treating the rest of us like rubbish. So um, although I'm not a great fan of the Labor Party, I think the Royal Commission into the banks would have been a wonderful thing to do. And they found a way around it by this this make believe thing they're going to do. Uh, oh, yeah. Ask them a few questions over a cup of tea, and, and, a, and, and, a, and a dry biscuit. But um, uh, David Murray, by the way, the aforementioned, makes exactly the same point you make, but he comes to a different conclusion. I sort of let you know that um, yes. he thinks we shouldn't go ahead with any of those things. But Brian Hartzer, who's the current head, head of Westpac, he came out this week. Uh, and said people should realise that banks are different. There are many critics of the size of bank profits. He was speaking to the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. He said, what I would say to these critics is this. These banks are very large businesses that play an important role in the health of the overall economy. And he goes on to say they're like a comparing them to a circulatory system that pump money around the economy, and that makes banks different to other businesses. Just like the human body needs a healthy heart, the economy needs a healthy banking system. So he says they have to make huge profits. But then he goes on to say one way to think about why the GFC happened is because banks forgot why they exist and they started thinking they were like any other profit-seeking enterprise whose job is to make as much money as possible. Now, having just said... Our role is to make as much money as possible. He now says our mistake was making as much money as possible. Can you sort that one out for me, John? <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. <laughs> Excuse me. An interesting point. A, a classic contradiction for the banks, which is, of course, that they are an important aspect of um, global and Australian capitalism in that they fund productive activity. But they undertake their own activities, which are basically you know, things like playing around with um, Australian dollar rates and interest rates and playing games on the stock exchange, short selling and long selling and all of that sort of stuff to make a quick buck. And those quick bucks you can see through the global financial crisis, the end result of um, of um, grouping together a whole range of very, very um, suspect mortgages, which were made by American lenders, and then selling them off before they collapsed to other investors were just part of the game of making that quick buck. So when the productive economy in the US and, and Europe began to decline in the, well, more recently in the uh, mid-2000s, banks turned more and more to making a quick buck on long sell, short sell, on grouping together mortgages and flogging them off uh, to other entities and so forth. And all of these things were, were forced on, well, not forced on them, but were part of the process of trying to continue uh, a good rate of profit because their normal lending, their lending to productive capital, wasn't producing the same level of, um, in, of return. And so those banks looked for other ways of doing it and playing on the stock playing with mortgages, playing with with grouping mortgages together, playing around with the, the Australian dollar, manipulating the, the, the pound in the UK and the euro in Europe. All of these sorts of things were ways to try and address uh, their falling profit rates from productive investment in companies which would go on to make profits or, in the case of in the mid-2000s, not profits at all, but, but to make losses. So they were trying to recoup it through a bit of uh, aggressive, non-productive investment. And, of course, it all fell apart in 2007 with the global financial crisis. And I think that's the distinction that 
Murray is trying to make, a distinction between productive investment where they, they make profits and non-productive investment where they're playing the game, whether it's on the stock exchange or wherever. And um, as the productive sector of society continues to decline, they look to more and more risky adventures to make, to make their profits. Uh, Australia is slightly different in the sense that we've got a, a banking system here which is run by basically four major major companies and they uh, have government support in terms of the guarantee for deposits. And on top of that, the Australian economy had the benefit until a few years ago of the, the, the boom in China especially. And so the lending here... Um, was both to productive finance and uh, to productive capital and also to uh, Australian home buyers. And that itself is another story. Look at, look at what's been happening to housing prices in Australia over the last couple of years, making it almost unaffordable for new entrants into the housing market to buy housing, which leads me to think what we need is a new public housing program. And the best way to, to pay for that would be to levy a rent tax on the super profits of the banks so that we'd have enough money to be able to provide housing for the people that the banks won't lend to anymore. On that that last point, we had a discussion between a couple of people on this program last week about the fact that that governments are not only not building new public housing, they're actually handing the existing stock over to private groups uh, on an increasing basis. Uh, And yet we also regularly mention here that, that... Public lands are so often handed over to developers with no public housing on them at all. You know, these are areas where at least you could put some public housing in. Yes, that's right. And I think uh, looking back to the 1940s and 1950s and the programs of public housing there, satisfying a need amongst ordinary working people for somewhere to live, to be able to survive and to be able to have a base from which they can regenerate themselves every night and come back to work every day is something that should be back on the agenda. Why, for example, are we um, privatising all of the capacity to provide housing and uh, employment, basically, to to private, private companies and private individuals? So where's the role of the state in helping society continue to grow? And I think public housing is the obvious thing about that. I think most public housing programs are dead or dying or in the process of not being mm. renewed or are sick. And there's a reason for that. I think, once again, the overall crisis of capitalism over the last 30 years and low profit rates have seen um, one response being cuts to company taxes in all of the country, or all of the major countries around the globe. And on and that means um, basically less revenue coming in, so that means cuts to social services like health and education and public housing. I, I, I don't think there's a problem here. I mean, the banks make super profits. Pretty clear when you're talking about $9 billion in your first six months for the Commonwealth Bank, that that's a lot of money. And, and the rate of return on bank investment in Australia is about double that of the rate of return on bank investments in uh, the UK and the US. So... Uh, why are they making so much profit? Where is this super profit coming from? And it's coming in large part from people like you or me who had mortgages or have credit cards or who deal with a bank in any way. And I think... It's all reliant, though, upon upon a huge amount of private debts, which worries me a lot. I mean, I think our collective private debt in this country is $1 trillion. And, you know, the the discourse is always about, oh, we've got to keep the public debt down. But while they're doing that, they're encouraging us all the time to increase our private debt. And it seems to me like it's a Ponzi scheme and it's going to end badly. uh, An interesting point about private debt is that I think it started to increase at about the time that the Accords effects, the, the Hawke and Keating government's Accords effects started, started mm. to impact, and that is to slow down wage increases and to shift the balance of wealth production from labour to capital. So that mm. uh, prior to the election of the Hawke and Labor government, I think the share of national income going to labour was about uh, somewhere around 60% or a bit over 60%. But by the time of the end of the accord, it had settled around at about 52%, whereas that gain of capital has increased over that period of time from 17% to 27%. And I think part of the response of ordinary workers to 
this shift has been to retain living standards by increasing their levels of private debt, whether that be in housing or whether it be through credit cards. And that, I think, uh, is going to come to a crunch at some stage. You just cannot have a society that's built on consumption fuelled by debt. No. And we're seeing parts of that flowing through in terms of the incapacity of people to now buy houses in Sydney and Melbourne, or many people being unable to buy houses in Sydney and Melbourne. And uh, that's having consequences for millions of workers across Australia because no longer is the so-called Australian dream available to them. And I don't think it's an Australian dream. I just think it's part of the process of capitalism, that what you want to do is own something that's steady and stable and going to grow over a period of time in value. But I think a public housing program addresses this. uh, Yeah. And that's yeah. what we should be talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, and we're talking to John Pesant, who's our regular, irregular or irregular, regular, as we keep saying, um, commentator on economic issues on this program. And, John, you did raise the question of the CUB dispute. Did you want to say something about that, obviously? Well, I think when we look at what's happening with um, CUB and the attempt to um, cut wages there by uh, 65%, that these are people who deserve the support of the, the unionists who have been sacked deserve the support of all uh, people around Australia, all committed unionists and others who are worried about where Australia is heading and where what Australian capitalism is up to. Because if the, the workers there lose, then I think that sets a very bad precedent for workers in a whole range of other industries. But um, there have been other victories, I think, more recently at other workplaces, but uh, I think the union movement is now is getting behind the Carlton United uh, brewery workers. And of course, uh, let me put in a plug for anybody who's listening to say, don't buy Carlton United brewery beers. And you can mm-hmm. see on any of the major union sites, there'll be a list of uh, what beers you shouldn't be buying, especially in the run-up to grand um, Aussie rules and rugby league grand finals this weekend. There might be a few parties going on. So unionists should avoid uh, Carlton United Brewery beers. Yes, we're all an drink- important dispute. We're all drinking different beers in here this morning, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, Andy... I've just got to have the whiskey to settle my hand. Andy, <laughs> is press- Andy is pressing the buttons. It just fell off his chair. Um, the uh, John, on that point, though, um, also BHP in their coal mine in Queensland, I'm sure you're aware, have recently offered workers a terrific um, deal. They're saying it's totally non-negotiable, a three-year wage freeze and cuts to all other conditions, including doubling their rent, because these are outback coal mines, doubling their rent um, from the frozen pay. So that's happening all across the board, obviously. Yes, and I, I think that what we're witnessing now is the start of the flow-through of the consequences of the collapse of the mining boom from around 2012-2013, not just in BHP, obviously, but BHP's a a good example where they've come through with a three-year wage freeze and, as you say, you have to pay double rent but uh, out of a wage that's not going up at all. Uh, I think also, if you look at... uh, It reminds me of a recent pay deal at uh, Blue Scope Steel in um, Wollongong and... The deal there was for a wage freeze, and suddenly, the year after the deal, uh, Blue Scope's profits <laughs> went through the roof. And you think, well, hang on, you convinced these workers to freeze their wages because you were in a loss situation, and now you're making billions of dollars of profit. Are you coming back to the workers and saying, oh, thanks very much, here's a pay increase? No, of course not. And I think. This is all part of the problem. The wages have been stagnating in Australia for a long period of time. There hasn't been major industrial action to challenge the one-sided class war that we've witnessed over the last 30 or 40 years, and that when it has, they've been defeated. And so people are reluctant to fight and are reluctant to take on um, the big businesses and even the smaller businesses, the medium-sized businesses, that are imposing wage freezes or are giving pay increases that are below the rate of inflation. Mm. I think that uh, eventually something's going to give. I mean, this Carlton United Breweries dispute is one example of this. The BHP issue that you mentioned is another example. But even wage increases, you've got the public services now has been fighting for two years for 
wage increases that are above inflation. And the delay itself means that these people are already behind the eight ball. Uh, and even if they win an adequate pay increase, uh, they'll still be behind the eight ball. So there's a general trend here of both um, not increasing wages at the same rate as inflation and then, as you now are pointing out, uh, attempts to freeze wages for a period of time. Mm. Or take, or take them back, which in the CUB case. But, um, yes. of course, it's also interesting that the economists and um, the, even the Business Council of Australia came out recently and they, they list the two or three things that they think at the moment are the, the big problems with the economy. And one of them is, is slow wages growth. And as I keep pointing out on my satire piece, well, that one's pretty easily fixed. <laughs> yes, the BCA. There's a classic line along the lines of... Um, I want everybody else's companies to get pay increases except mine. <laughs> I don't want mine to get them because that cuts into my profits. My workers to get them because it cuts into my profits. But hey, I want other workers in other companies to get pay increases because then they can buy my product. And it's a classic contradiction of capitalism or one of the classic contradictions of capitalism that what we've got to do is make profit first and that means we've got to put pressure on wages in a in a time of uh, falling profit rates. We've got to put pressure, on, downward pressure on wages, freeze them, cut them, sack people, whatever it happens to be, replace them with robots. Oh, but hang on, hang on. <laughs> Why isn't anybody buying my widgets? <laughs> 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 hang on. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I, I just, you know, if the Business Council of Australia thinks that we need higher wage increases, that's great. Why don't they then intervene in the CUB dispute and tell um, the owners of the Carlton United Breweries to stop cutting their workers' wages and pay them more? Why doesn't it tell the public servant bosses to pay their wages more? Why doesn't it tell um, BHP to stop freezing its wa- wages? Uh, you know, the, the contradiction is just so obvious uh, that if you want uh, a better spending Australian economy, you've got to pay higher wages. Um, but if you look at what's been happening with wages over the last decade, and then, of course, more recently, wages now are not rising in line with inflation or are rising mm. only in line with inflation. So there's been no real wage increases uh, for a period of time. And even if there is, the, the benefits of the increased productivity are overwhelmingly going to the bosses so that even if you do get a pay increase that matches inflation or is slightly better than it, most of the extra benefits you've created through your labour are still ending up in the hands of the, of the bosses through extra profits. As I mentioned before, that, that shift in the distribution of wealth breakup in Australia from labour to capital is very marked. You know, capital is now getting 27% of the gross national income or the national factor of production income compared to 17% uh, 20 or 30 years ago. So even if wages are increasing, the point being there that uh, what's been happening is there's been this shift in uh, profits from our labour to to capital and the end consequence of that is that we haven't got out of uh, or avoided any uh, long-term economic problems. We've got 800,000 people unemployed. We've got people, many, but two point. Two five million people living below the poverty line. We've yeah, got it's, people... a, it's amazing that the greatest little economic order of them all can't employ everybody because that's what it's there for. It keeps telling us. But uh, John, we're out of time, unfortunately. Nine fifty nine. But look, we'll do it again because we've really only scratched the surface as usual. So um, yes. we'll get you back again shortly, and um, and we'll go through all this over again, or not over the same stuff. But there's so many things to talk about. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for the interview. Okay, thanks, I John. Appreciate it. Thanks Bye-bye. a lot. John Passant there, who's, um, as we say, a former Assistant Commissioner of Taxation, and as you can tell, um, probably what he said today explains why he's no longer Assistant Commissioner of Taxation. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Mark, next week, uh, first Wednesday, isn't it? So it's transport. It is. Uh, next, yeah, next week. I won't be here. Adrian will be back. Oh, Adrian's back next yes. week. Oh, we should have mentioned, by the way, Emma's um, at the end of academic year. She's off studying madly, so Andy's coming and thankfully filling in for us. Thanks, Andy. Uh, always a pleasure. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's good to have and, you back. Uh, I will be in Adelaide if there's anything left of Adelaide after right. tomorrow's storm. So, we'll so to be heard on Andy, you're going to have to yell very loudly next week. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so John, uh, we, anyway, it'll be uh, Adrian coming back in and, um, and, as I say, John McPherson. Thank Andy um, and say goodbye. Thank Thank you, Andy, and goodbye, everybody. City Limits, brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am.
city limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, city limits. limits.